Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening to us, everybody. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing good. It is Mother's Day. Yes, when we're recording this. And we sent flowers to our respective mothers. Yes. And we had a video chat with your mom. Yeah. And... I texted with my mom. Yes. <laughs> Different levels of communication is good. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but it was good. It's been a nice day. Yeah. How are you? I'm also doing well, thank you for asking. Always. <laughs> Always! <laughs> what are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Black Castle from 1952 and from Universal International. Okay. And... Listeners, uh, if you listened to last week's episode, you will know that this film happened because The Strange Door from Universal International had been a success. This movie was designed as a direct follow-up. And, folks, if you've listened to last week's episode, you will know that we determined that The Strange Door was not horror. Right. But we're giving this one a shot for reasons that I think will be... Made clear as Ben goes into the context setting? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I have a suspicion this will maybe turn out like how the strange door turned out, but we're going to give this one a shot because it does have some historical importance. Um, like world history? No, no, like minor niche horror movie history. Okay. Yeah, like just some niche things. It connects a lot of dots. Okay. Um, so, because The Strange Door had been a success, of course, Universal did what all movie studios then and now do, which is immediately pump out similar product as soon as they can while the iron's hot. The Black Castle was not based on any pre-existing literary material like The Strange Door was, but it did share the former film's period gothic setting and much of the same cast and crew. Once again, the script was written by Jerry Sackheim, and Joseph Pevney was set to direct, with Charles Lawton as the main villain, and Boris Karloff as a misdirect character meant to keep the audience guessing which side he was on. Sure. So pretty close to the same setup. Yeah. However, Pevney was unhappy with the script, and when Universal refused to make the changes he asked for, uh, he quit the picture two weeks before shooting was set to commence. Ooh, that's a short notice. Yes. The film's art director, Nathan Duran, was promoted to replace him and given 20 days to shoot the picture. 20 days isn't uh, it, bad. It isn't you know, bad for a movie. Good, yeah, yeah, for a movie like this, it's not bad at all. I think it's even like a little generous in respect to the fact that he'd never done it before. <laughs> So Some producers like, art direction, film direction, it's the same thing. Yeah, he's got director in the title. He must know what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, it's a bunch of record producers who are running Universal these days, and a record producer does not do even close to the same job that a film producer does. <laughs> Duran was born to a Jewish family in the region of Bukovina in 1907, uh, then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, today part of Romania. Yeah, I was going to ask, where is Bukovina? I've never heard of that place. You have, because it's where my family's from. Oh, what if you were distantly related to this guy? Maybe, but my family was a bunch of peasant farmers, and this guy was like a well-educated, urban Jewish Romanian, so probably not. Probably not. Yeah. His family emigrated to America in 1912, and Duran went on to a master's degree in architecture from MIT. Dang. Yep. Then the construction industry ground to a halt because of the Great Depression, and Duran was forced to come to L.A. to find work uh, as a designer for the movie studios. Sure. He started at RKO in the mid-30s, moved to MGM in the late 30s, and then finally to 20th Century Fox in the 1940s, where he won an Oscar alongside art department head Richard Day for their work on How Green Was My Valley in 1941, which also won Best Picture that year. Okay. 
He must have used a lot of green paint. It's a black and white movie, so I feel like that would have been a waste. Gotta paint it something, Ben. Sure. <laughs> he also worked on Dr. Renault's Secret in 1942. Okay. In World War II, he enlisted in the Navy and was assigned to the OSS, uh, which was the precursor to the CIA. So he worked in military intelligence. Okay. After the war, Duran signed on to be the head of the art department at the newly formed Enterprise Productions, which folded within six years, which is why you've never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> Duran then signed a long-term contract with Universal, working as art director on films such as Winchester 73, Harvey, and The Strange Door. After the Black Castle, Duran never went back to the art department. But then the film ran into another snag which was that Charles Lawton dropped out. Universal, you see, had refused to let Abbott and Costello shoot their next movie, Abbott and Costello Meet Captain Kidd, in color. So they made the film independently uh, and shot in the cheaper Super Cinecolor method, which was a new three-strip version of the two-color Cinecolor method, which is what Scared to Death had been shot in. I don't see how this connects to Charles Lawton. Well, you see, Abbott and Costello wanted Lawton to play Captain Kidd for them. And though they could only afford to pay Lawton $25,000, that was better than any of the other offers he had at the time, including the Black Castle. Mm. This left the film with two problems. One, a need for a new main villain. And two, a need for a new second horror movie headliner alongside Boris Karloff. Yeah. Now, you may think that they would solve those two problems with one stone with their choice of actor, but they went with two different actors uh, for these uh, roles. Okay. And the reason for that will soon become apparent. Uh, For the film's main villain, they cast Stephen McNally, a 41-year-old former L.A. lawyer who had sold his practice to follow his passion for acting back in 1942, playing a variety of roles in many pictures, uh, often as a villain, including a supporting role in Winchester 73. His career lasted to 1980, and he passed away in 1994. Good for him. As for the second headliner, Universal reached out to bring Lon Chaney Jr. aboard. Sure, Lon Chaney has been looking for some kind of steady work. His career was in a really strange place at this time. Um, It had been slumping due to his alcoholism and also the slump of horror in general. But he'd become a favorite of producer Stanley Kramer, who cast Chaney in the 1952 critically acclaimed box office hit High Noon. Oh, right. I forgot he was in that movie. Yeah. Kramer said that whenever he was going to make a film that had a role that he thought most actors in Hollywood couldn't handle, he called Chaney. Interesting. Do you know what he means by that? Like, that they couldn't handle? Um, If it was a role that he just felt like most people couldn't portray, he had faith that Chaney could. Um, He had a lot of faith in Chaney's abilities as an actor. Cool. Um, But 1952 also saw one of the biggest acting embarrassments in Chaney's life. So Chaney had been cast as the monster in an adaptation of Frankenstein for the half-hour live science fiction anthology television series Tales of Tomorrow on ABC. Um, Granted, it's 1952. Pretty much all TV is live at this point. Chaney showed up to set drunk, and he performed thinking that the live show was just the rehearsal. Oh, no. Picking up furniture and props that the creature was supposed to, like, smash, and then, like, making a motion with them, and then gingerly setting them back down again (laughs) while muttering, I saved it for you. (laughs) The broadcast is preserved as a kinescope, and so you can still see it today. Which is not really true of a lot of early television that was live. Yeah. So you can actually find this on YouTube. Nice. They saved it for him. Yeah. (laughs) So for Black Castle, Chaney was given the role of Gargan, a lumbering, grumbling, hunchback assistant character, uh, because Universal wanted Chaney for his name brand, but didn't trust him with any larger roles. 
So he's being put into the place that we've seen Bella Lugosi yeah, do. Yeah, get placed in. They don't even really trust Chaney to have lines. Yeah. And for Chaney, you know, who had recently done this, like, really good character role in High Noon, this was kind of like a last straw. This is when he finally realized that he would never be a star for Universal again. Like, this is like in the abusive relationship where you, like, come back for, like, another time and finally realize, like, oh, this is never going to be what it once was, right? Yeah. And so this is the last horror picture he would ever make for Universal. For Universal or at all? For Universal. Okay. Uh, his career would come to depend on taking roles in cheap horror movies. Joining Cheney, of course, as the other headliner is Boris Karloff, as I mentioned before. And between The Strange Door and The Black Castle, Karloff had gone to England to shoot three pilot episodes for a detective television series called Colonel March of Scotland Yard. Was um, he the colonel? Yes, he's the lead. The show didn't really get picked up, so the three pilot episodes got jammed together to become a feature film with Karloff shooting like in between parts to link the stories together, sure. uh, which was then released uh, to theaters uh, in 1953. But when the British government uh, passed the Television Act of 1954, which broke the BBC monopoly on television and allowed other networks to form, Colonel March was picked up as a launch title for the new ITV network. Uh, and so Karloff returned to England to film 23 more episodes for a total of 26, which aired in the 1955 season in the UK and the 1956 season in the US. Good for him. Yeah. Nathan Duran said that he was greatly helped by the cast in this debut directorial effort, uh, particularly Karloff, for injecting much into his character that wasn't in the script. The film's heroic lead is played by Richard Green, who was born in England in 1918, a descendant of four generations of actors. Wow. His stage career began in 1933, and his good looks allowed him to supplement his income with modeling. He started getting film offers, and he signed to 20th Century Fox in 1938. Green became a matinee idol, uh, with his female fan male equaling that of Tyrone Powers. Oh, wow. Yeah. When the first Basil Rathbone and Robert Bruce Sherlock Holmes film was made, The Hound of the Baskervilles, it was Green who had top billing as Sir Henry Baskerville. Sure. When World War II broke out, he served in the 27th Lancers Cavalry Regiment in the British Army, uh, rising to the rank of Captain. After the war, he moved to Universal International, playing the lead in 1950s Eastern adventure film The Desert Hawk. However, Green achieved his greatest fame when he returned to the UK to star as Robin Hood in the 1955 to 1959 extremely popular television show The Adventures of Robin Hood, which basically cemented him as like the face of Robin Hood in Britain until the television series Robin of Sherwood began in 1984. In the late 60s, Green would play the hero Nayland Smith in two Fu Manchu movies starring Christopher Lee, and his final film was 1972's horror anthology Tales from the Crypt. He would continue to act on television until his death in 1985. So he comes back to horror later. Yeah. That's cool. Universal released The Black Castle for a special pre-release show on Halloween night, October 31st, 1952, before beginning its general release on November 20th. The studio was very pleased with Dran's work and awarded him a contract as a director. He would go on to direct a number of sci-fi and fantasy films, including 20 Million Miles to Earth and The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad with Ray Harryhausen, as well as The Brain from Planet Erus, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, Jack the Giant Killer, First Men in the Moon, and then in the 1960s, numerous episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Time Tunnel, Lost in Space, and Land of the Giants. He passed away in 2002. The Black Castle was a success with audiences and critics, but would prove to be the last of the old-fashioned, gothic-styled horrors 
from Universal before the studio joined the sci-fi atomic age monster trend of the 1950s. Yeah, that's something we noticed with The Strange Door, that it was not stale, but like definitely these older tropes that they are falling back on. Yes. The film is available on DVD from Universal Home Video in the Boris Karloff collection. Great. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy of that collection and you can watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Black Castle from 1952, directed by Nathan Juran. See you on the other side, everybody. to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Black Castle from 1952, directed by Nathan Duran. Ben, what did you think of this one? This is great. This movie is great. It's so fun. It's, it's dope. You should go see it as soon as possible. Find a way to do so. Find the DVD. Order the DVD. Have it delivered to your house. Watch it. It's so good. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, and we can dive into this further, but I think it's closer in horror than The Strange Door, but I don't think it is hitting horror despite that. No, no. I think right off the bat, the best thing to do is to just out of the way say, this is not horror. It's the same bait and switch of Strange Door with like the horror advertising and the horror stars and the horror font in the credits with the horror atmosphere and the horror setting. And the Wolfman soundtrack. Right. Um, but it's it's an adventure film in a horror shell. It just does that bait and switch better than The Strange Door. Yeah. Because, well, for my money, it does everything better than The Strange Door. <laughs> but Not that The Strange Door was terrible. It's no, just it, like that. this is why The Black Castle is so much more fun. Yeah. Um, but let's... Uh, Let's talk about the story, which is, I mean... Fun. Stop me if you've heard this one before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they try to throw basically everything except the kitchen sink in here. Mm -hmm. So, Sir Ronald Burton is being buried alive. That's the horror bit. (laughs) His eyes are open and he's staring straight into the camera, urging the people who are there, like, closing the lid on him to, like... Realize what's happening. Urging in his mind, because yes. he's, he's paralyzed, you yes. see. Um, and he's like, it all started back when. Yeah. <laughs> Record, scratch, you might be wondering how I got into this situation. <laughs> his two friends, Sterling and Brown, have disappeared after being summoned to a Count Karl von Bruno in Austria's Black Forest. So Burton is like, I'm going to go track these guys down. Something terrible has clearly happened, but he needs to get some evidence in order to get the British authorities involved. And he plans to go under the alias Richard Beckett to find out what's happened. Um, And he does this alias because he knows the Count by reputation. They were both in West Africa, um, where the Count had set himself up as a white god... And when Burton, Brown, and Sterling, with the backing of the British government, went into West Africa, um, their forces clashed, as they say, and the Count, his right eye was injured. So that proved to the Africans that this guy isn't a god, so he was deposed. And according to this movie, the Native Africans then welcomed the British in to uh, get a corner... As liberators. As liberators, uh, and to get a corner on the ivory market. Yeah, I think... I, I buy the idea that the natives welcomed them because they did just oppose a tyrant, but I think they probably didn't expect them to overstay their welcome in such a way. Colonialism. Yes. Um, but these are our good guys, Burton... So he, he's like, okay, well, I'll go under this alias as Beckett, so the Count doesn't know that I know who he is. 
and I'm responsible for him being deposed. Yeah. So Burton, as Beckett, goes and poses um, to join this hunting party. Uh, and it's party as in, like, you know, for a whole week, let's go hunting. That's, that's kind of the thing. We're rich people. We're rich people. This is what we do. By the way, it's um, a period piece. Yeah. I don't know what year it is. Um, based on the outfits, it seems like it's maybe the mid-18th century. Um, I realized long after the fact that we never mentioned in the Strange Door episode that the time period had been updated from the 1300s in the short story to the 17th century in the movie. But I think this is about approximately the same time period. Okay. Yeah. So as Burton is introduced to the Count and his whole deal, he gets a little bit of a tour into the dungeons and sees this Black Panther that the Count has had locked up and starved and abused, and this panther will be released at the same time as everyone going out to hunt, both as, like, kill the deer and the boars before the jaguar gets it, but also, don't get attacked by the jaguar yourself. Yeah, he's, he's putting it into the hunt as the final boss monster of the hunt. During the hunt, the sadist Count leads Burton into a trap. Uh, it's like this big, deep pit, so he has to fight to hand, hand-to-paw combat with the leopard. But um, just as things are about to turn for the worse, the Count shoots the leopard, and Burton is saved, and he fames being upset that he didn't get to kill the beast with his own two hands just to keep on the Count's good side. Mm-hmm. But long story short with that is Burton is awarded these two dueling pistols as being like the person who took down the leopard. So this is going well for Burton. Um, he's, you know, gotten on the Count's good side. He's been able to infiltrate areas of the house to start looking for evidence. But things start to go awry when Burton starts to fall for the Count's wife, Elga. Mm-hmm. Elga doesn't love the Count, um, both for his cruelty, but also she didn't want to marry him, but no one says no to the Count, and they've only been married six months. Yeah, like she was, she was forced into it. But as they are talking, one thing leads to another, and Burton ends up telling Elga his whole deal. One of the Count's henchmen overhears Burton telling Elga, um, but before this henchman can tell the Count, he is mysteriously murdered. I mean, they try to pass it off as a natural death at first, but it is... Murder. Yes. Now, there's a couple people in the castle that I haven't mentioned yet, um, because they are either, like, being misdirects or, like, more, like, suspicious characters, so that's... Lon Chaney as Gargan. Yeah, Gargan. Who is basically mute. Um, his backstory is that he was with the Count in Africa and he had his tongue torn out during the deposition, the Count's deposition. Yeah, during the Native Revolt. Yeah. Yeah. Deposition, I don't think, is the right word. No, sure isn't. But <laughs> that's, that's like a legal term. Yeah, but, you know, being deposed. Deposition. Right, no, I, I, I totally get where you got there, <laughs> but I think native revolt will do. So, um, Gargan has a uh, intense hatred for all British people. Yeah, he's just like a lumbering, moaning hunchback assistant guy who has, like, a lot of brute strength. Like, he's that stock character. Yeah. It's a little sad to see Chaney in that role, but it is what it is. The other character who I haven't mentioned is Dr. Mason, who is Karloff's character. Now, he is also kind of being a little shifty. He has a very unique costume in this, I will say. Uh, I've never seen Karloff huh. like this before. Um... And it, he comes off as being a bit of a sadist himself. And yes, he's a doctor and he's sneaking around as well. Yeah, he's doing the same kind of shtick he did in Strange Door of like, oh, is he on the Count's side? Is he against the Count? What's his deal here? What's going on? Exactly. So Burton finds evidence of his friends being here. So he's like, great, going back to London. Elga, I have to leave you. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Bye. And he heads out. Now, the Count knew that, that something was going on, so he assumes a love affair. 
Yeah. He traps Elga in his torture basement. Yeah, turns out Elga's wife number two and wife number one also died. Question mark, question mark, question mark. mark. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So the doctor, who's clearly developed, um, like, a fondness for Alga, not in a weird way. Yeah. It's important to acknowledge that in some of these movies. Yeah, for sure. Um, He goes to Burton, and he's like, look, I know you deal, because I overheard you telling Alga, but Alga's in big trouble. You gotta come back and help her. And Burton's like... I gotta get to England. Like, I can't even trust you. And he's like, ah, I guess you can trust me. I killed the Count's henchman who was going to rat on you. Yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. They head back to the castle. They find a way to justify, like, oh, I forgot things. Yeah, it's why the silver pistols were important and set up, because the the justification... They, they, they work a trick where, like, Karloff goes to the castle first to, like, put his the pistols that he won in his room so that he can come back and be like, oh, I forgot my pistols. During this time, a villager has mentioned to the Count, Hey, yeah, you know that, um, Beckett guy? He was asking about those two guys who I know have mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> Brown and Sterling? Uh, I was surprised to see that he was leaving the castle. Uh, but I don't know anything else about that. So the Count puts two and two together. So upon Burton's return, he's like, Ah, you shall join Elga in the tortured basement. <laughs> So Elga and Burton are like, well, fuck. What are, we, what are we going to do? And this is when Dr. Mason comes back and he's like, don't worry. And more, maybe worry a little bit, but <laughs> um, I have this poison, this elixir, to be more exact, that will feign death and then we can get you out of here. It's, now, that, it's that thing that every doctor in a Hollywood movie has, but... Like, I'm pretty sure doesn't exist in real life. Yeah. No, it does. That's how they make zombies. Oh, yeah. It's the pufferfish venom, right? Yeah. Yeah. How he has it in Austria, who knows? That's uh, that's for the novelization of the movie to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> so he gives that to them. And then uh, he alerts the Count, like, hey, they're dead. And the Count is furious, and he's about to kill the doctor in rage about this. And the doctor's like, no, wait, please don't kill me. I, they actually took a, an elixir. I, I, they're just fake d- dead. I know nothing, though. I don't know anything <laughs> about this, but they, I think they are just fake dead. So the can's like, ah, great. We will have their funeral just in time so that they will be buried um, right as they are waking up to, like, really wring out their suffering here. Yeah. Once the bodies are prepared for burial... The doctor does uh, stash the uh, two prize pistols in with Burton. Um, now, we as the audience don't know he's stashed the pistols there. We just see him, like, over the dead bodies going, like, Please forgive me. I don't have the courage of youth. And the Count comes up behind him and stabs him for his treachery to the Count. And that's, that's Karloff. By the way, by this point, there was an attempted escape. <laughs> In this basement, there is a room that is just an alligator pit. Yeah. And it's wonderful and pretty well done. But in the struggle of them trying to escape, them as in um, Burton and Elga, Cheney does get kicked into the alligator pit. And that that's Cheney. So yeah. we're going into the climax without our two horror stars. I feel like... Continuing to refer to it as a basement, I mean, while technically accurate, this is a dungeon in both senses of the word. It is both a place where we put people in cells underground. It is also a Dungeons and Dragons lair with, like, pressure plate traps and and alligator pits and all sorts of crazy shit. Yeah. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's post-funeral, and some servants are coming in to nail the lids shut on the two bodies. And um, this is right back where we started with the beginning of the movie. And there's some good bits with the servants nailing things shut, and then they hear moaning coming (laughs) from Burton's casket. And they're like, uh, maybe we should get out of here. (laughs) 
But eventually they go, no, okay, we need to check out what's going on. So they start to try to unnail it. They yeah. try to open up the, the, the coffin just as the Count comes in. And he's like, what are you doing? And pushes them off. And that's when Burton busts out of the casket and shoots the Count point blank with his fancy dueling pistols. Next scene, Burton and Elga are heading back to England. Happily ever after. Happily ever after. The servants are happy. The area is happy because the tyrant count is dead. Um, the count's right-hand man was also killed during the, like, coffin pew-pew. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the end. One thing that I, I liked in this movie, and it's it's kind of subtle, but there's, like, a definite theme in this movie. So... The Count doesn't treat his servants, or really anyone, well. Uh, you know, like, even the guys, like, his lackeys, who are the closest thing he has to friends, one of whom is, like, one of the same lackeys from The Strange Door. Like, it's the same kind of relationship. Uh, he doesn't really treat them well. He certainly doesn't treat his servants well. Whereas, like, Burton has this um, servant his man who follows him around uh, named Romley and he is like loyal to the core. And the reason for this is we see that Burton treats him really well. He lets him ride in the carriage with him. He takes him around everywhere. They have like more of like a Watson Holmes or Batman and Robin kind of relationship than like a master servant Mm -hmm. relationship. Romley, um, his one act of disobedience to his master is staying behind to help Burton and Elga escape with, just a stool to fend people off, and he <laughs> promptly gets shot and killed. And, of course, that escape attempt does not succeed. Yeah, that's the escape attempt where Cheney gets yeeted into a alligator pit. <laughs> um, and then there's this other servant, Fender, who is the Count's driver. He's basically driving the carriage to pick up Burton and bring him to the castle. And when he is looking at Burton and Romley's relationship, like, he's fucking flabbergasted. Like, he had no idea that, like, wait, you can treat servants good? Yeah. And uh, he gets assigned the job at the very end of the movie of nailing the coffin shut. And, you know, then hears the moaning and opens it up. And I think what we see, because then at the end of the movie, he becomes, like, Burton's new Romley. Like, he, he's like, yeah, you can come with me. And he's like, dope. I think there's, like, a subtle thing in here of, like, treat your staff well. You know? Like, <laughs> I think there's, like, a subtle undercurrent of don't be a dick to your staff. Yeah. I mean, all of that goes to show, like, Burton's a good guy. Mm-hmm. Gloss over the involvement in colonizing Africa and establishing Britain's foothold in the ivory trade. But he treats his staff well. Yeah, he's he's a good guy by mid-18th century standards of good guy. Yeah. Um, this this movie is so, so fun. It's, it's tropes galore. We yeah. Got, we got sword fights. We got an alligator pit. We're hunting deadly animals. We have an eye-patched villain. Torture and dungeons. An East European setting. Spooky castles and villagers. Secret passageways. A mute-ish henchman. And pulp serial vibes. Yeah, it's, it's very much got the feeling of an adventure serial done with money and in 82 minutes. Yeah. Um, which is kind of what we thought of Strange Door, but like... Everything being done here is better. The use of the horror elements is better. The script is better. The characters are better. The story makes more sense. The sets look better. The pacing is better. The suspense is pulled off better. Yes. Like... There is a moment... So we we went on about um, the strange doors, like, climax with the key and Karloff, like, bleeding (laughs) everywhere trying to get this key to the people in the locked cell... Um, and how it was just, like, overly drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a similar scene here with keys and building tension. Um, Romley has grabbed the guard's keys, and it's a big, like, jangly thing. Yeah, big ring of old keys. Yeah. And he's trying to unlock the cell door before the mob of servants comes. And the tension is, like, which key is doing it? Mm-hmm. But they don't overdraw it. 
and it's not too short. Like, he doesn't do it, like, like the second key. It's, yeah. like, the fifth key or something. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like the family guy gag that the previous movie kind of felt like. Yeah. Richard Green, who's playing Burton, is just, like, I can see why this guy went on to be Robin Hood, because he just has, like, this perfect, like, classic hero vibe. Yes. Like, this is sort of a sidebar, but, like, modern day movie heroes have like a requirement to have like a hundred pounds of muscle on them. Yeah. Right. And that's not really something that movie heroes were really required to do even like up till the nineties, like Michael Keaton, Batman's muscles were molded into his suit. Michael Keaton didn't have to do no sit-ups. Um, he did have to hang upside down. Maybe that was a stunt guy. We don't see his face in that shot. Um, my point is, Richard Green, if you want a picture of him in your head, if his shoulders were, like, a foot broader on either side and, like, he was maybe a bit taller and, like, had that modern movie hero build, he would just be Henry Cavill. <laughs> like, he looks like Henry Cavill in sort of in his, his how his face looks. You can look at um, early pictures of Henry Cavill before he really bulks out. Uh, like, especially before he does Superman. Yeah. Um, but I think really before he gets into being an actor, mm -hmm. um, and he, he kind of looks like that. He doesn't yeah. have the muscle mass that he definitely has now. Yeah. Um, but anyways, so this guy's handsome. He plays this, like, classic hero. You know, Strange Doors hero was sort of more trying to be, like, I mean, it's not appropriate because Han Solo doesn't exist yet, but it's a Han Solo type, right? A, yeah. a rogue um, whereas Burton is, like, straight up, like, a noble hero. He is the good guy. And in the exact same way, Stephen McNally is... He's amazing. He is playing, like, just a classic villain. Like, he's got the eye patch and the scar and the sort of superior attitude and the henchman. Leather jackets. Yeah, they, they for the hunt, <laughs> they've got everyone in, like, 18th century clothing. Like, picture, like the outfits from, like, Amadeus, right? Where you've got the coat, the puffy cuffs, and, like, the, like, big sort of puffy ruffles for That's the tie. Cool. Yeah. And he's wearing one of those, but it buttons up in the front like a fucking motorcycle jacket, and it has big, like, lapels around the, like, ruffle, and it's made of leather. Yeah. And it's just, like... It's amazing. <laughs> and he, he's having so much fun with it. Not to the extent where I would describe him as chewing scenery. He's not going into camp like Charles Lawton did. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's just being a good villain. Yeah. In fact, his villainy like kept reminding me of like a James Bond villain throughout yes. the movie. That's the kind of feel he has. And in fact, basically, if you want a sense of this movie in your head, to me, it feels like it's the midway point in the development of, like, action-adventure movies between Errol Flynn and James Bond. Sure. Like, you could take this exact same plot and move it to a contemporary setting and have a Bond movie. You wouldn't have to change anything aside from, like, replacing some swords with guns at some point. But, like, otherwise, it's like, you, you know, you could do it exactly. Yeah. It's, it's got the exact same feel. It's but, just in a swashbuckler setting. Yeah, that's a really good point. Even down to, like, the, <laughs> the villain's lair. Mm -hmm. Like, in James Bond, they're all modernist. Yeah. But here, it's an old castle with an alligator pit. Right, and, like, the He's whole... He's like, um, our big bad here, the Count, is, like, Dr. No and Telly Savalas. Yeah, Blofeld. Yeah, yeah. He, he's he's that. And he's got, like, the kind of classic Bond villain thing of, like, the main girl that Bond ends up with starts as, like, the villain's girl, but he mistreats her. Yeah. Like, he's got the henchman. Like, it's, it's exactly that kind of thing just in this earlier setting. And the thing is, like, Errol Flynn swashbuckler movies have that period setting, and James Bond just takes those sort of things and puts them in this, like, contemporary spy thriller setting. Yeah. This really feels like the midpoint. I'm, to be clear on the chronology, uh, Dr. No, the first Bond movie, doesn't come out till 10 years after this, and the first Bond book isn't published until a year after this, in 53. Mm -hmm. Just to, again, clarify, 
we aren't saying that Ian Fleming wrote Dr. No based on this movie. We're not doing a cause and effect. We're just talking about broader trends in the culture and how action films were being developed. Yeah, I think um, that's... I just feel it's good to be specific For sure, for sure, yeah. When I say it's on the midway point, I just mean like if you imagine the evolution evolution of the action film, we're kind of at this midway point, right? Um, The dialogue... It's so fun. Oh, it's yeah. It's like soap opera levels of like, especially the way that Elga and Burton interact. It's it's so good. It's so fun. And it's not overdone in the way that like a, a soap opera spoof might be. Um, or even soap operas themselves. Like, it's just, just enough. The dialogue here, like, it feels like, like if I was Jerry Sackheim and I wrote this script... Like, I would be going around to everyone being like, this is the best thing I've ever written. Like, <laughs> it, it, there are lines in here where it's like, oh, that's such a good line. And you couldn't really use the dialogue in this movie in, like, a movie that was taking itself seriously. Yeah. But, like, they are just, there's a lot of good lines in this movie. And what kind of struck me about the dialogue is this is the kind of dialogue that George Lucas is trying to do in Star Wars. In, yeah the original movies and in the prequels. This is the kind of stuff, right? Like the love between Elga and Burton with the like, you know, oh, we can never be together and like... I love you. I know. Right. This is how scenes between Anakin and Padme should have played. Like this kind of stuff is... It's it's an old-fashioned style of movie that you don't really get anymore today unless it's like a subversion or like a, a a modern deconstruction or something like that, right? That's playing off of it. No one does this straight anymore. But like even at the very start of the movie when Burton's meeting with the British ambassador in Austria and he's talking about why he's going on this mission and so on and the ambassador's going on about like, you know, his importance and things. They just start talking about like, you know, this isn't going to be like that time in Africa about like these past events and eventually we do get the backstory but initially it has that very star wars feeling of when you watch a new hope for the first time and 3po is like oh there's no escape for the princess this time and like referencing things that happened outside the movie right um yeah it's it's really good i really like this script that being said i have to uh bring back something that you said in the context setting of how Karloff added to the script Mm, um, in his character. So Dr. Mason, we don't understand what his deal is. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't know why he's here. All we know is he's a doctor. He's clearly from around here. Uh, He serves the Count um, willingly or, like, begrudgingly. We don't know. And he clearly has developed um, a feeling of wanting to protect Elga Mm -hmm. in some sort of way. To the point where he risks his own life to go get Burton to come back to the castle. Risks his own life and loses his own life as a result of helping them escape. You get the feeling that they don't say it and there's nothing to this. But you get the feeling, almost, like Dr. Mason is Elga's father. Yeah, I kept expecting that reveal because... As you say, otherwise, like, nothing explains what his deal is here. Like, why does he work for the Count if it seems like he hates the Count? Like, he's not like the other um, lackeys who are kind of into it. And why, like, every time they say that he's a doctor or talk about him being a doctor, it's a joke. Like, it's like, oh, Dr. Mason. Oh, really? I didn't catch that. Yeah, like, as if, like, the impression I got was that he was like a... Uh, like a failed doctor, like maybe had his, his, you know, degree stripped away from him or something like, or, or he was a quack or something. In a past episode, we would have seen that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, But like, he has this implied backstory that is really only coming across because of the way the lines are said, not how they Mm -hmm. are written. And even seeing like the way Elga interacts with him, it, it, it again feels like she knows that he is someone who could protect her, at least has her well-being in mind. Yeah, and in the scene where Elga's explaining to Burton, like, why she married the Count, like, that she was forced into this marriage contract, she digresses a bit to talk about her father in relation to the Count. Like, 
the count is brutal and sadistic. And my father was this like kindly sensitive uh, teacher, this like man of learning. And so I really just kept expecting them to reveal him as her dad, but it just never happens. It's one of the like two problems I have with the movie. That they don't say it? Yeah, that it's not there. That like It's not textual. It's, right. it's more. Because like otherwise you're just left with a lot of questions about his character. Like his character in The Strange Door, you do understand what his deal is. You get why he's doing what he's doing, right? Whereas Mason's just a little bit unexplained here. What's your second problem? So it has to do with the other horror star in this movie, which is Chaney. Yeah. Um, kind of as you already alluded to... Um, Cheney has nothing to do. They basically, what they did here was they took Karloff's character from the strange door and they sort of split him into two where Karloff is playing the plot function of his character in strange door. This like mysterious misdirect character who ends up being on the hero side and Cheney is playing the like flavor of Karloff's character, the like dungeon troll guy. <laughs> and the thing is, because Karloff gets the plot function, he's necessary for the movie to work. Cheney is completely superfluous. He doesn't do anything, really. He has no lines. You know, everything that he does do could have been done by some other lackey character. Um, you could lift him out of the movie completely, and it would change absolutely nothing. Like, it's a role that exists. Like, it feels like the role was added after the fact. Right? Which it was. Yeah, it, it feels it, like very clear that this is a role designed to get Cheney's name in the marketing, but not significant enough that if he fucked up and like was wrecking things, he wouldn't be a liability. Yeah. What I do have to commend Cheney for is he's clearly giving this role attention. He's not just like phoning it in. Yeah, he's trying his best with what he has here. Yeah, and, and I I think that's admirable, mm -hmm. you know. And and as you said in the context setting, like this is the point where he realizes that he, he his time at Universal is done. Yeah, I don't blame him for not going back after this. Yeah. Yeah. I think one strange thing about this movie watching it is like so I can see why they gave Nathan Duran a, a, a like a directing contract. Yeah, this um, is very well done, especially for a first-time director. Like, I can't even tell it's a first-time director. The movie looks like a million bucks. Like, yeah. I, can't, I can't really tell if these are the same sets as The Strange Door, but if they are, Dran is hiding it really well by finding new angles to shoot them from that don't make that obvious, which makes sense, because if they're the sets from Strange Door, he designed them, so he would know. Yeah. Um, but, like, the scenes where we're out front of the castle, you know, with people getting in and out of carriages. We're outdoors in front of, like, a real question mark castle. I think what it actually might be is, um, like a, like a old, like, Spanish, you know, Los Angeles, like, villa with all the, like, you know, uh, tiled ceilings and stuff just kind of covered up with, like, some medieval shit. Um, that was kind of what it felt like to me. But anyways, we're, <laughs> we're outside, and when we go into the Black Forest to hunt, we're not on the universal forest set that we're going to pump a ton of dry ice into it looks like they're really outside and the like fog looks like what like real like morning misty fog looks like yeah it's very impressive it's very well done the mood setting um is is really well done from the beginning to the end um very impressive what makes it weird feeling to me is that the movie seems to exist in a strange liminal space where it looks way more expensive and well shot than like any B movie we've ever seen from Universal, at least for a long time. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have like the cast and the prestige, you know, above the line people that you would expect from an A picture. It's like somewhere in between. B plus A minus. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, not a horror movie, but I think in this strange subgenre ranking above the strange door. <laughs> yeah, I think um, your identification of this movie as like a stepping stone in, for lack of a better word, the action genre mm -hmm. into how we get James Bond is, is really apt. 
Um, and I think also explains kind of the best way why this is not horror. Yeah. So this film will be going onto the miscellaneous part of the list, a list that you can check out at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. That is also where you can find our appeals box if you would like to contest this or any other ranking. You can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, or you can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast.gmail.com. You're also welcome to chat with us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are found by subscribing to our RSS feed. You can help out the show by leaving us a rating or a review on the services that allow it. Uh, Apple Podcasts is the most helpful to do that on for algorithmic reasons. But another way you can help the show out is just by telling a friend about it. Share the show on Twitter, on Tumblr, on Facebook, on whatever method of online discourse you prefer to use <laughs> if you have the means we would also really appreciate you taking a trip down to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month patrons at higher levels get access to exclusive bonus content and when we hit our first patreon goal of 150 dollars a month we will begin to do extra bonus episodes on horror adjacent films like this one yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, I don't want you to get too excited, but you should get excited. <laughs> We're going to Warner Brothers. Okay. For a remake. Okay. It is the most successful movie in the 1950s 3D movies gimmick. Okay. It features the return of an actor we haven't seen in a long time, but we're going to see a lot of from this point forward. His name's Vincent Price. Oh, dope. Because next week we are watching House of Wax. Amazing. Um, this is with Paris Hilton, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. All right, well, uh, we'll get our 3D glasses in the mail. Yeah. And uh, we will see you guys next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.